The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. This famous quote, which is adapted from a poem by Robert Burns, is something we've all experienced. No matter how much we plan, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to turn out the way that we want it to turn out. But I think the opposite of this reality or this expression is equally or even more interesting. We might pose it this way. Even terrible plans sometimes work out for good. Even terrible plans sometimes work out for good. There was a boy in New York City in a New York City high school who had a terrible accident one day at school and he broke his nose. And if you ever broke your nose before, you know you're not having a very good day. He was excused from school in order to go down to the local clinic to have it treated. And so he went, and coming out of the clinic, he walked across the street, and he decided to skip the rest of the day of school and go to the Bronx Zoo. He paid his fare, he walked through the turnstile, and immediately he was surrounded by officials from the zoo and people from the New York media because he was something like the one millionth visitor at that zoo before it had been founded. And it was presented with a lifelong membership to the New York Zoological Society, which is something that most high school boys strive after. <laughs> Even terrible plans sometimes work out for good. Think about when it's happened to you, whether it's that thing that you're cooking, you don't have all the right ingredients, and so you just start to throw things into the pot and see what turns out <laughs> happens to be the best thing you've made. It's too bad you can't reproduce it. That road trip that you started on where you got in the car and just began to drive without a map and it ended up to be one of the most memorable experiences. And on down the line it goes. Whether the plans that we make are laid out poorly or whether they're conceived with ill intent or ill will, sometimes those plans still work out for good. And that is what we see here in John chapter 11. We see the plans of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the day, present just this reality. Their plans with how to deal with Jesus are loaded with sinful desire. And yet, God, in his mercy, uses these plans for good. So I want to ask you to open your Bible with me, if you haven't already, to the book of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11, is found on page 898. And... This morning, we're going to read verses 45 to 54. Let me remind you where we've been. Jesus is revealing himself to the people in the region around Jerusalem. He's teaching them. He's referring to himself as the great I am in a number of ways, which, as you might know, is one of the names for God. He even just very recently raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And immediately following that account of raising Lazarus, it says in verse 45 that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the whole people, not, the whole nation, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Even terrible plans sometimes work out for good. And we see here in this text two ways that God uses the terrible plans of Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders for the good of all humanity. The first way we see this is that Jesus is designated to be the sacrifice for the whole nation and by extension for all people. What we see here is a basic problem and solution. Here's the problem. There's this guy named Jesus who walks around. He claims to be equal with God. He keeps teaching people. They keep believing him. He's performed a number of miracles that people have seen. Word is getting around in Jerusalem and the surrounding communities. And now... Word has it that this guy actually just raised somebody from the dead. And the result is that he has a growing following. Now understand the context. Throughout the history of the Jewish people, they have been waiting for a Messiah. A Messiah that they believed would be a political deliverer for them. And now was a time that they needed a Messiah. The Roman Empire had overtaken Jerusalem. They were ruled and governed by the Romans. They were occupied in their land. And now was that time that they needed a deliverer. And here's Jesus, the prophetic-voiced, miracle-performing man, garnering a following, and rumblings are going through the street that a Messiah might be among them. And this constitutes political unrest in Jerusalem. This was a problem. And so when we look at verses 47 and 48, we see that the religious or ruling body of the Jews, which is made up of chief priests and Pharisees, called the Sanhedrin, they were growing in their concern. Look with me at verse 47. It says, If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come. And they'll take away both our place and our nation. 
That is to say that if there is a political or religious uprising that's going to happen in this community, the Roman soldiers are going to clamp down on these Jews. They're going to take the temple away. And they're going to insert an increased level of dominance in the rule over them in Israel. This was a problem. And Jesus was the threat. And so Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, offered a way to resolve this threat. A political assassination. And as we read the text, we see that this Caiaphas was no ignoramus in the realm of political things. He talks about Jesus without ever mentioning his name. He gives the charge of what should happen to him without ever saying how it should be filled out. He simply insults the crowd of religious leaders and offers a dictum that sounds like wisdom and expects it to happen. Look with me at verse 49. He says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. These words <laughs> strike us. This is the plan. And it's a plan that is filled with mixed and even ill intent. But look carefully at whose words these really are. Verse 51 tells us that he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Consider this with me. We hear the words of ill intent, even political assassination toward this Jesus that we've come to know, that we've come to love, that we are seeing the picture of his revelation in, as it unfolds, and we are offended by it. I am. And yet, these words did not originate with Caiaphas. They were God's words about his own son. Sure, I mean, they had an intended meaning, an intended purpose when they came out of the mouth of Caiaphas. Sure, the Jews wanted to genuinely fix the problem that was before them. They wanted to maintain the status quo with the Romans. But if, indeed, these were real words of prophecy... As verse 51 says, God himself put these words into the mouth of the chief priest and compelled him to speak them. You see, the Pharisees thought that their biggest problem was that their current standing and relative peace with the Romans was threatened. And therefore, Jesus needed to be sacrificed to bring about that peace once again. However, their biggest problem was that their current standing and peace with God was completely and already gone. 
And God knew that Jesus needed to be sacrificed to bring about that peace with him again. And so there's this incredible paradox. There's this dual meaning that's happening in this account. How did Jesus' sacrifice accomplish this peace that God knows is their biggest need? Well, of course, this is the story of the gospel, isn't it? The entire nation of Israel, and by extension, humanity, are engaged in sinful actions rather than living under God's rule. You and I wrestle with this every single day. Who's going to be the king over me today? <laughs> me or God? And all too often, I choose me. And as a result, I make choice after choice, sin after sin, that constitutes rebellion, that threatens peace, that even means I'm, in some ways, spiritually warring with God. Sometimes we don't feel like it. Other times we do feel that tension. But when we live in our sin, the scripture is clear that all of us are found to be at odds, even at war with God. And so justice for sin is required. And it was the only way to establish this peace. And so Caiaphas says it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation die. Little did he know what he was saying. He had one purpose. God had a greater purpose. Peace. Not just in the region, but peace for all humanity with their creator. Romans 5 points to this. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus' death did not produce the result that they wanted. <laughs> but it produced the result that we all needed. And that is the amazing thing about God's plan here. But the implications of this are deep, and I want you to consider them with me for a moment. Because so often I think we go through life thinking that God is most efficient in his ability to react and to redeem situations that we screw up. And we might articulate it that way, but most of us think that way. As if we undergo suffering in our life. And God reacts and says, well, I better make that suffering worthwhile. And so I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. As if we lose a loved one, a parent, somebody that we are close to in death. And God says, hmm, I didn't see that coming. I better lead some people to Christ at the funeral so there's something good that comes out of this and the situation is redeemed. As if Caiaphas said, Jesus needs to die. And God says, well, there goes those humans again. I better make his death worth something more significant than just this moment. But my friends, God is so much bigger than that. And I understand why we wrestle with that tension about God reacting versus God planning. 
I mean, it's hard to deal with the tension of God's sovereign will and our freedom of choice. It's hard to picture a God that deals down in the muck with some of these things. I mean, after all, he's lofty, he's holy, he's righteous. But the more we look at the biblical witness, the more we see an ever-increasing picture of how God works. And there's a difference between believing that God reacts to the problems in my life by simply fixing them versus him being in the problem and planning and managing it all the way through to its intended purpose. We see here and we see consistently that God works managing and planning even in the midst of the crazy hard stuff to bring things to its intended purpose. And when that happens, when we begin to see that, we get a firmer grasp on the fact that God doesn't need to react to the problems in our lives. But rather, he's intimately involved even as they occur. We see that if God planned and orchestrated the execution of his own son, the most tremendous event in human history, to meet our greatest need in human history, the forgiveness of our sins, if God was in the middle of that, then most certainly he is able and more than willing to be in the middle of all of the problems that we have of much lesser stature and working in them and through them to bring them out to their intended purposes. Please, please, please don't go through life thinking that God doesn't recognize the difficulties that you have. Because in reality, he's already right in the middle of them. And he's managing them toward a purpose that you might not be able to see just yet. Jesus' death was a bad plan from a human perspective. But it worked out for good. Jesus' death did not give them the result that they desired, but God was planning it to give us everything we needed. There's a second way in which we see this bad plan having good results. Look with me at verse 52. We see that after the comment that this prophecy did not come from Caiaphas himself, and this was not just intended for the nation of Israel, verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas is using this language of a shepherd to gather the sheep of Israel who are spread throughout the known world at that time. However, that wasn't God's plan, nor was it his primary concern. We saw in John 10, 16 that Jesus is called the good shepherd, and he's called the good shepherd who brings in people who are not of his flock. They're part of another flock. That other flock is the Gentiles, most of us here, the rest of humanity. And the significance of his redeeming work, even in God's plan well before it happened, was to bring all of humanity, all types of people into his sheepfold, to gather them into one group called his children. God 
points us ahead to this kingdom dynamic that we have in Jesus where there's no more distinction or privilege or position or ethnic hierarchy. But anyone who believes is part of this family. We celebrated communion today and I read from John chapter 1. And as I did, we saw that any who believe have the right to become the children of God. We see in Galatians 3, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. There's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Caiaphas is worrying about Israel's peace and security with the Romans because this was a way to protect what he perceived to be the children of God. But we see that the cross of Jesus becomes the place where what it means fundamentally to be a child of God changes. The cross is the place where all types of people gather into this one family. And so, what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that God plans this most significant event? What does it make us think and how do we respond to him? I think in a couple of ways. Number one, I'm mindful and it makes us mindful that we don't want to be Caiaphas in the story, <laughs> right? We don't want our own self-interests to stifle what God is doing. And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that is a temptation, you know that when you see God blessing someone else in a way that you want to be blessed, there is this sort of visceral desire to hop into the middle of that somehow or even hijack that for your own good. You see that when there's something, whether it's in church life or whether it's in uh, your life beyond the walls of this place, when there's something that is dear to you that is threatened that all of us have in us this capability to subvert the plan and try to bring about change of our own effect. I'm mindful that I don't want my own self-interest to get in the way of what God is doing. Because from a human perspective, Jesus was showing himself to be God to these people and they wanted to kill him. I'm also grateful. I'm grateful for God's grace and mercy that he didn't give us what we deserve. And beyond that, to know that in the power of God, he plans and manages. He is so much bigger than even we conceive of. He plans and manages even the most difficult things in our life, and he works them toward a good purpose. And I know it's easy to talk about that from a distance when you're not suffering. And it's much more difficult to recognize that in the middle of those of you that might be suffering. But here's the thing. 
if you'd never prepare your mind for how God works in and through history and in and through your own life, when you come to the point of suffering, you will have no frame of reference to process it. I was just talking to somebody the other day who had the most amazing response to an incredibly difficult situation in his life. And it was right along the lines of what we're talking about. It was right along the lines of, this is terrible. I hate it. It's hurtful. And yet I know that somewhere in here, God has not abandoned me, even though I can't feel him right now. I'm grateful that God is not bound to react to our problems but that he's actually in the middle of them, working them toward their intended purpose. And I'm compelled, and I hope you are too, I'm compelled by the love of God for the nations that he should want all types of people, even people that aren't like me, even people that aren't like you. You know, there's a story of an old man who lived in a small village And he was the poorest man in the village. But he owned the most beautiful white stallion. And the king had offered him a small fortune for the stallion. And after a terribly harsh winter, during which the old man and his family nearly starved, the townspeople came to visit. And they said, old man, you can hardly afford to feed your family. Why don't you sell the white stallion? And you'll be rich. If you do not, you are a fool. It's too early to tell, the old man said. And a few months later, the old man woke up to find that the white stallion had run away. And once again, the townspeople came and they said to the old man, See, if you had sold the king your horse, you would be rich. And now you have nothing. You are a fool. It's too early to tell. The old man replied. Two weeks later, the white stallion returned, and along with it came three other white stallions. Old man, the townspeople said, we're the fools. Now you can sell the stallion to the king, and you will still have three stallions left. You are smart. It's too early to tell, the old man said. And the following week, the old man's son, his only son, was breaking in one of the stallions when he was thrown crushing both legs. And the townspeople paid a visit to the old man. And they said, old man, if you had just sold that stallion to the king, you would be rich and your son would not be crippled. You are a fool. It's too early to tell, the old man said. Well, the next month, war broke out with the neighboring village and all of the young men in the village were sent into battle. And all of them were killed. And the townspeople came and they cried out to the old man, We have lost all of our sons. You are the only one who has not. If you had sold your stallion to the king, your son too would be dead. You are so smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. Dwight Moody once said, I would a thousand times rather that God's will should be done than my own. I cannot see into the future as God can. Therefore, it is a good deal better to let him choose for me than for me to choose for myself. In God's providence, 
He displays his love for his people in this great plan. When his people were choosing to murder his son, he was choosing to redeem them. Jesus' death did not get them the result that they wanted. But it got all of us the result that we needed. And we thank God for that. Let's pray together. Lord, that you would exact a plan such as this despite the will and desire of your people, points to so many wonderful things about your love and your grace and your mercy that far exceed our greatest expectations. You are a loving Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. You provide a perfect solution to our greatest problem. And Lord, Please forgive us for the times that we take lightly your solution in your son Jesus to that greatest problem. Please forgive us for the times that we take the sin that we have so lightly as a problem. Please forgive us for the times that we second-guess you in the midst of our lesser problems, our sufferings, our turmoils of this life. You are a loving Father. we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.